Hey, welcome to Church Online. Wherever you are, if we don't know you, please connect with us. We'd love to do that. Go directly to our website at kenmore.church and click on the next steps, launch of the yellow circle with the white feet, and we'll get straight back to you. Let's have a look now at what's coming up at Kenmore Church this week. Do you enjoy riding a bike, wearing Lycra and hanging with friends? Kenmore Church is organising an off-road cycling tour on the Brisbane Valley Rail Trail from Yarraman to Walkaraka on June 11 and 12 for guys and gals. It goes over two days and costs only $160. The ride suits riders of medium to strong fitness levels. For more information, head to kenmore.church and check out the events tab. We'd like to thank our congregation for their generosity in giving, which allows us to fuel our various ministries. Proverbs 3 verse 9 says, To honour the Lord with all your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. You can give through direct debit or online at kenmore.church forward slash give. For more information about anything that's happening at Kenmore Church, visit our website at kenmore.church or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. We hope you enjoy the service. Okay, welcome back to Entheos, uh, the third part of our series. We've been having a great time with it. And I want to start today having you reflect on the questions that perhaps you don't give voice to day to day, but which really matter and really apply to what we're talking about now. So I just want to open this message with you delving into your own soul just a little bit while you're listening, because you alone know the most admirable version of yourself. You know those sort of days where you end the day knowing you've done the right thing, you've done what matters, you've done it for the right reasons. It's, it's imperfect, of course, but you know you're going to sleep well tonight. That's the good version of yourself. But you also know the version that has the private failures, better than anyone. How you just couldn't help doing that thing that was unnecessary and regrettable and it hangs over you like a shadow at the end of the day. You knew better, but you did it anyway. You came to a moment of choice, big or small, and it was a fail, again. Like that moment when someone drives silly in front of you in traffic, then you come beside to overtake them or pull up at the lights. You know it makes no sense, that there's no win in doing it, but you find your head swinging sideways to sort of look at what sort of human actually drives like that. It's that sort of moment where you know it's not necessary, there's no win, but you just do it anyway. Uh, Perhaps you think they're going to have mildly cranky or crazy eyes and repent, but whatever it is in your mind, there's a judgment thing that just comes upon you and you don't even know why you do it. And so given a free moment, you might think, why did I feel like I had to do that? What drew me to do that? Okay, we've been looking in this series at defining moments that come before us all. Some are big and like our example just now, some are very small. But nonetheless, they're forks in our road. And they have potential to change the course of our lives, particularly if they're the big ones. This series is about who or what determines our choice. Who or what is our God within? Entheos, what gives us the enthusiasm to drive us and to inevitably pursue things? And how do we recalibrate that? Because it's, our, it's at our moments of choice that we discover who is the God within. We saw major divergence in the path of the seeker. This came up in the last session. We looked at how there's rejection 
uh, of God and faith and belief in the place of reconciliation by faith. We saw that there's rebellion comes as a fork in the road in place of responding. And we saw that religion comes in place of true freedom. And so if you trace your life story, you'll find those defining moments. Some were wise and some obviously weren't. And scripture has an easily overlooked guide for us that we've seen before from Jeremiah 6, 16, where it says, this is what the Lord says. Stand at those crossroads and look, ask for the ancient paths, ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But then it goes on. But you said, we will not walk in it. Isn't that the truth? At times, we simply say, I won't walk in it. But what about those moments when we don't feel it was even a choice that we had? We know it's sort of a fork in the road, but, but one path looks completely blocked and we feel like there's really only one way to go. Often, these are the very crossroads where Jesus offers the most life, and yet it seems the most far away for us. The gravity of the situation just seems to draw us away into the inevitability of taking the path that we've always taken. So much so that we don't even see the other one as a viable path. And in the end, we often give up trying forever. This week, I want to dive into one such type of these crossroads, and that of relying, of faith. Those moments of, do I believe, do I rely, or do I not? And you know, for Christians and non-Christians, the idea of faith is an enigma for so many. It's an irrelevance beyond believing that God exists and I'll get to heaven one day. We think, it seems to have little real relevance to my normal day. I have no use for this idea of living by faith. So what do I mean by living by faith? What could it possibly mean to live from God? And this mentality that we grapple with derives from a Western mind because we see that winning in terms of performance, if I'm better than the next guy, then, then I win. But when we apply that mentality to the God life, it means I do the best I can. It's okay to fail, Jesus covers me, but I just keep trying and that's the story of my life. But that's not faith, that's faithfulness. It's never wrong to be faithful, but that's not the primary objective. You see, faithfulness used to be a fruit of the Spirit. That's how it's defined in Scripture. See Galatians 5.22. It's meaning I'm full of faith and faith overflows. But now faithfulness for us replaces the idea that Jesus offered, that of fruitfulness. It's doing the best we can do in our own strength. So faith becomes reduced to meaning it's what I believe, not what I experience, not what I rely on. And so when a more convincing argument is heard, we think we have lost faith, but we've never had a full experience of it in the first place. And so I want to land this today in a very real way in your life. See, Jesus gave a startling example of what faith can look like, but we misread it, and so it becomes out of reach for us. In Mark 11, 22 and 23, he says, Have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. That does sound pretty extreme, throwing a mountain into the sea. So we think, well, that must be either an allegory, he was, wasn't really meaning that practically, or he meant it and we haven't seen it yet, so there's something wrong about the whole description and outliving of faith. But let's have a look a little bit deeper because he was actually talking about things in their very real life. It wasn't some abstract idea, something that will never happen. He was talking about the very real things that affect the lives of believers. You see, the context was Jesus was walking in that moment between Jerusalem and Bethany. 
And when he said this mountain, he was saying this mountain. The, the Greek's very clear. He was talking about a specific mountain. He was literally pointing at a mountain when he said it because there was literally only one mountain there to be seen, and it still is. It's called Mount Herodion or Har Herodes. And there's a holiday villa and a, a refuge built there by Herod the king uh, by the slaves. And they literally built this thing on top of a mountain to make it even more impressive. And it was the only mountain in town. And that was the one he was looking at. But for those who were listening to Jesus, that mountain was an icon for everything that was difficult in their life. Oppression by Rome and Herod, slavery, taxes, injustice, indulgence of the upper classes. Everyone there knew exactly what Jesus was referring to and it really meant business. It was polarizing because they were burdened under the, the rule of Herod and the Romans. And so Jesus was saying, every painful issue that affects your life, tell it to go jump into the sea and it will. Was Jesus saying you'd have no problems? No, he had often said the direct opposite many times. He was saying that with faith, the problems are not your mountain anymore. They don't block your path. You can be bigger than the problem and there's no gravity that obliges you to indulge in things like worry and stress like that. So let's look again at your life, at your situation, because we come to these crossroads every day. We find ourselves worrying, frustrated, dissatisfied, anxious, and it fuels a response. Often it's the same response one year after the other. For example, I fear something, so I try to control life in the hope that it never actually happens. When faced with our trigger points, and we all have them, it's like those crossroads are back. It's choice time. And the thing we respond to is our God within, our entheos. Our enthusiasm at that moment will drive us right or left. If my God within is comfort, then it drives me. If I get distressed, overpressured, insecure, then my pain seeks pleasure because comfort is my God within. It's time to eat, it's time to shop, time for a drug or something like that. I'm in pain and instead of asking what the good way is, I divert. So what's the alternative? We stand for a moment, as the scripture says, and ask what the good way is. But when we ask that, let's go beyond asking what's the right thing to do here, because that's what we normally would do. It becomes a, a, a morality-based thing, or what's the rules, what am I supposed to do? And you probably already know. And knowing probably hasn't helped you too much because your, your own strength won't do it. What's the right thing? That question, what's the right thing, is a faithfulness question. It's a good question. It's an adequate question. What if we ask something different? What if we asked, who's my God within? Who or what is the fuel for my life? Is it the true God I believe in or is it something else? How do I know? Well, your God within is the one who gets the first and the last say in which direction you take. If it becomes a battle of priority, which normally ends badly for all of us, you can be sure that that God within, uh, the true God, isn't preeminent because God doesn't compete. God is first or in, in the realm of reality, he's nothing. Jesus is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. So we need to pause right here and square this whole thing away. Is the God of scripture, the creator of all, your God? Is he the preeminent God within? Is he the source of your life? Have you accepted his gift of salvation? Does he come before all things? That commitment needs time to work through all areas of our life. But if you are hedging your bets there or you're hesitating, 
then know that Jesus invites you to fullness of life and true meaning. It begins with relying on what he did at the cross to pay the price for your sin. Rather than relying on your best efforts, rely on his perfection that he covers you with. If you want to do that, just go to our website now. We'd love to get in touch with you. Just click on the yellow launcher there and where it says, I've decided. And we'll follow you up about that. But if we are clear on that, we've already squared it away. Jesus is indeed Lord. Then we need to ask the next great question. What has he actually promised me? See, now we're going beyond what's right and wrong. Now we're saying, who is God within and what has he actually promised? Because God is only obliged to give what he's told us that he will. And it's very clear in scripture. This is where we can't escape a priority on reading and understanding scripture. It's full of his promises to give life and strength and guidance and so much more. But if we don't know the promise, we don't rely on it. We don't have faith in the promise because we don't know what it is. But look at 2 Peter 1, 3, verse, uh, what, 2 Peter 1 verse 3 to 4. It says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who's called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate, and get this phrase, that you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Can you see that? He gives us promises and through them we participate in his divine nature. That's a really loaded term. Essentially it means his spirit, God's own spirit, God himself is within us and we participate in that nature. We're empowered, we're moved by his spirit, we're moved to do the supernatural. And when we know what the divine nature offers, only then can we rely. If we don't know, we don't rely on it. And so our crossroad is to either reject God or to enjoy that relationship or the divine nature. And so when asking about what are his promises, what are the things that he's promised me he'll provide, I normally default to three main categories uh, and they'll be in the notes. Uh, that of power, that of peace, and that of purpose. When we talk about power, we're talking about God's empowering grace that tangibly gives me strength and counsel and wisdom and clarity. He's promised that. I can rely on that and receive that. Or peace, uh, a better word, is shalom in the, in the true Hebrew depth of their understanding. It meant calm and joy beyond our comprehension, to be reconciled with God, with people, with ourselves and so on, to overcome. And then we uh, can draw purpose. That's direction for life. Uh, open doors that only he can open, spiritual gifts that empower us to fulfill his calling, clarity of our calling, all those sorts of things. So they're the sorts of things that God promises us and they're facets of the divine nature that we're invited to partake in. And so a choice of faith at that moment is to rely on them. Okay, let's break it down. Let's get really, really practical. The things you deal with every day. Let's look at how to live by faith. You come to little defining moments constantly. It's a choice to rely on Christ or yourself. But remember, it's about what he promised. He didn't promise your car wouldn't break down or your boss wouldn't be a tyrant. But he did promise peace and power and purpose. So consider something like this. What's your greatest fear? What's the thing that triggers you? Is it being rejected by those around you? Maybe you fear being alone or being criticized or being poor or getting sick. We've all got something. What is it? When you're confronted with it, what is it that you recoil back and you feel compelled to look for a different path? You want to escape. What brings that response in you? 
This creates your defining moment. This is the fork in the path. This is where we stand and ask, what's the good way here? And rather than rejecting Christ and doing all I can to avoid what I fear, I can rely on what is promised from the divine nature of God himself. It's incredibly powerful and a great opportunity. Instead of the darkness and the anxiety of fear, we can walk into power. So Jesus made a promise in Philippians 4, 6-7. He said, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God, that's shalom, there it is, a promise, which transcends all your understanding and all your fears and everything else, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Quick correction there, that was Paul who said that, not Jesus. But what he provides goes beyond what we can produce. That's the big point. So much of our life, so much of our time and our energy is spent overcoming what we fear. But Jesus offers to do that for us. We can choose faith for that. Let's choose another area. In what area of life do you, are you most aware of what you don't have? We're talking about a sense of lack. What do you feel like is lacking in your life? It could be anything. Money, appearance, talent, opportunity, a spouse or a friend, anything. Find your thoughts. You find your thoughts going to it and you try to make up for it. You're just aware that this is a very real and probably a very valid need in your life. And so Jesus made copious promises about that. And I'll abbreviate them in Matthew 6, 25 to 34. Do not worry about your life, what you'll eat, your drink, about your body and what you'll wear. And why do you worry about clothes? Will God not much more clothe you? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans, and when he says pagans, that's those who choose the other path, the path of rejection. The pagans run after all these things. They pursue them. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. What I love about that passage that Jesus says, he says, God understands. He knows that you need these things. He's created the sense of that need within you, so it's valid that he promises to meet them. He promises to provide, but invites us to a deeper experience of his kingdom, which is just another word for shalom and for peace. He offers us the pathway of faith, living from the kingdom in that, in that moment. In that moment of our greatest anxiety and pain where we just want to run a mile, he says, choose the other path because it brings you to a much better form of life. It's kingdom. All right, let's keep going. What about the reality of something like disappointment? I'm, you're bound to have experienced something like that in the last few months. Or dealing with the really hard anger and bitterness that comes when someone lets us down or slanders us or treats us really badly. We find ourselves, don't we, reliving it. We, it goes over and over in our head and we have retaliation conversations, which we always win, but we've never actually had in practice. These sorts of things destroy our soul. It builds up toxins in our spirit and our emotions, even our body. They literally kill us inside and they seem to repeat day after day. Every time it comes to mind, it's another crossroad, another choice for rejection or for divine relationship. But look in scripture and Acts at the example of Stephen as they were killing him. He was falsely accused, he wasn't believed, he was misquoted, but he looked and saw Jesus directly, literally seeing him in an open vision. Jesus was standing up. The only time the resurrected Jesus is not referred to as sitting down next to God. He was honouring his servant who repeated what he too had said, forgive them father, don't hold this sin against them. That's in Acts 7 verse 60. This is what it means to live by faith. 
same problems, maybe more, but a different power, peace and purpose. To engage fully this God within, we don't need to stir him up to action. What needs to be stirring is our relationship and faith. When you sit a long time with the faithful one, you can't help but grow faith. By spending time in his presence, actively praying and listening, you dig a deep well, a reservoir of trust that you can draw from as you come to the crossroads moments. So let me finish this message in prayer and I want to pray over you the same prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians 3, 16 to 19. For those uh, who've been living with God and really kicking goals, he said, this is the big deal. This is first prize and it was this. I pray and I pray for you that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's you this week and I hope you get a chance to go through the discussion questions with some other people. We'll see you next time. Bye now.